Okay, now on to the very great good news. And it's this. Jesus does not expect his followers to be perfect. Otherwise, just think of this. He would never have chosen the 12 disciples that he did. They were not perfect. And even after being chosen, they were not perfect. But they were willing to follow and willing to learn. And my question this morning at the outset is, are we willing to follow? And are we willing to learn and to know Christ completely? That, my friend, is a good question. Do you like dealing with constant complainers? Well, I got a little note here that I picked up some time ago. It's a copy of actual maintenance complaints. It was actually submitted, supposedly, by the U.S. Air Force, uh, a group of pilots or some individual pilots, and it also shows the replies from the maintenance crews. So I'll just go ahead and read No, two or three here, but I, I was quite amused by them. Problem number one, left inside main tire almost needs replaced. Solution, almost replaced left inside main tire. Problem, something loose in cockpit. Solution, something tightened in cockpit. Problem, evidence of hydraulic leak on right main landing gear. Solution, evidence removed. <laughs> Problem, number three, engine missing. Those of you that know engines know what missing means. Solution, Engine found on right wing after brief search. <laughs> Look, where there is lack of clarity, there is always confusion and always the potential for misunderstanding. I want you to keep that in your mind. Have you ever really looked at who it was that Jesus chose? I mean, who he picked to be his inner circle? If we're honest, it's pretty mixed up as far as I'm concerned. That's a bunch of people that you and I probably wouldn't even have considered. I mean, a motley crew indeed. An unusual group with which to change. Look, their mission is, we're going to change the world. And so he picks these 12 men. Actually, he spent a night in prayer, and I'm thinking uh, if he had to think that over, he might have thought he should have spent a little more time in prayer, I don't know. And then he handpicked 12 people. These men were, were the ones he wanted. And, and I, I have asked the question. I never did get an answer, but I've asked the question many times. Like, Jesus, why? Why did you want these 12? I'm thinking if Jesus had hired a consulting company to see what they thought about the choices he made, I think he would have likely received a response that would have read something like this. Follow me. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management or managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests 
And we've not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are completed, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service to you, we make some general comments for your guidance. This additional insight is given as a result of staff consultation, and it comes with an, without an additional fee. That was nice. It is our opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter, for example, is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they place personal interest above company loyalty. Uh, Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well and has a keen business mind, and he has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We would recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your coming adventure. Sincerely, the Jordan Management Consultants. Let, let's talk about relationship here, because that's what they're going to enter into. Let's talk about relationship with Jesus. You see, Jesus is a reality to be known and lived. If you, if you want a life motto and something that's all different from anything anybody else has, I would suggest that you take this one on. Jesus is a reality to be known and lived. So how do we get to this reality. Well, in John chapter 6, I want you to turn there in your Bible or in your Bible app, the sixth chapter of the book of John, because we're going to learn some amazing things today. Jesus explains that for us, the importance of him being the bread of life is of ultimate importance. Let me ask, have you ever been misunderstood? I have to let you think about it for a moment, I know. Have you ever been misunderstood? I, I read this story of a busy stock market uh, brokerage, a stock brokerage office. Uh, there was a man there by the name of John Hunt, and he knew that it was very hard in the business day to find any time for small talk, so he was caught off guard when a co-worker leaned over to him and asked, what's up, John? Hmm. Welcoming a, a little break, John told him about his hectic week and trouble he was having with his car and his, you know, few problems. And the co-worker seemed a little distracted, however. He wasn't really listening. 
And after their conversation ended, John saw him lean over to another colleague in the office, and he said, hey, Robert, what's the ticker symbol for Upjohn Pharmaceuticals? What's up, John? Have you ever had trouble, like you're doing now, understanding something? And didn't really know what was going on around you? Look, I think we've all had times when we didn't quite understand what was said, right? Well, in the same way, people here in John chapter 6 are having a difficult time understanding Jesus, and especially understanding his words and the meaning of them. If we look back at the early verses of John 6, and we're going to kind of launch out in, in the middle of the chapter, but if we look at the early verses, and I commend those for your reading, maybe as a homework assignment, the miracles Jesus was doing were great. They were exciting. They were unbelievable. In fact, the people were so excited about him doing these miracles that they had this thought and they kind of collected it and they said, let's take him by force and make him the king. That you'll find in verse 15. Now, of course, that attempt was futile and it never did happen for Jesus knew the best way to put off those endeavors. Well, the best way, and to just kind of stop them in their tracks, was for him to say things that were hard. And he did. For Jesus made unusual, he made extraordinary claims. In the Gospel of John, seven times we hear him say, I am. And that every time he said that was a claim to deity. He wasn't bragging. He wasn't using it for advancement. That was a claim to deity. So when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, it held, listen friend, huge significance. Huge significance. And he would go on to say, I'm the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. Today, though, we go back to that first claim. I am the bread of life, or I am is the bread of life. And from this, we get the theme or the title of this message, which I want to present to you this morning, Feeding, Finding, Filled. Starting at verse 41, I see some of you have already found it. We're going to tap into five aspects of this bold claim of the Lord Jesus. And the very first one, without hesitation, is complaint. Verse 41 and 42, and I want to read them with you. So the Jews grumbled about him. Wow. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus? the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? How does he say that? For which Jesus draws a criticism, great criticism because he set himself, they thought, higher than the rest. And indeed he was. He said, in essence, I'm the real thing. I'm the real bread. See, there will always be critics. 
Don't ever fear to say your piece or stand up for yourself just because you know you might or you will be criticized. There will always be critics. There will always be critics. There's an old story of a lady who made artificial fruit. I don't know if she sculpted it or if it was plasticized or ceramic. I don't know how they do that. But it, she did it so perfectly. Have you ever seen that stuff sometimes so perfectly? You, you were almost tempted to take it and grab those grapes or that peach or that apple or whatever because you were sure it must be, it must be the real thing. But she always had critics no matter where she went. And she, they would find fault either with the shape of the fruit or, the, or the, 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 the color or the tone or one thing or another. So one day as critics star, stood before a table where that she had placed some, uh, several pieces of fruit, they criticized particularly one apple, like in that whole bunch of fruit, they, they criticized one apple. It just looked too artificial, they said, and they were criticizing and talking and kind of mocking it. When they were done, the woman picked up the apple, cut it in half, and began to eat it because it was a real apple. You see, some of the people may not have liked what Jesus said or how he said it, but that really didn't matter. What did matter is, was, and is the truth. But still, people did not believe him. Notice his critics based their disagreement on their knowledge of him. And even in that first statement in the early verses we just read, you could tell they didn't understand who Jesus really was anyway. They felt his claims were outrageous. After all, Jesus was well known to them. He grew up in Nazareth. Uh, he was an ordinary, natural son of Joseph and Mary, was he? Think about that. Think about that. Yet these complainers were a bit stuck in the mud. That's where complainers usually end up. Critics, gossips, complainers, they're, they're very much the same today. That's one thing that has never changed through the centuries. Jesus was performing signs and wonders, miracles in front of them. Nevertheless, they would not, or I should say, they could not cross over a barrier of their own making and embrace Jesus for who he was. And this brings me to the second aspect of this whole situation. We'll call it the comeback. And we start to read at verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. Except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, I love these words, has, present tense, eternal life. Now, Jesus tells them to stop their grumbling. For they were never going to learn the truth that way. Grumble, grumble, grumble all you want. Hello. But you're never going to get to the truth that way. Jesus doesn't, does, does point out to them why they're unable to grasp this great truth. The grumblers don't understand. You've got to hear this or you've missed it all because they are not connected. See, we all like to feel independent, don't we? There's just certain things we like to solo. We just like to do it on our own. We like to have that feeling of independence. 
We like to think that when it comes to our relationship with God, that it's all us. It's all about us. But it is by the testimony of, the, of Jesus that we are drawn to the Father. We are compelled to the Father. We are brought dragging sometimes along, just being dragged along by the Father. But as we believe and as we trust and as we hear the testimony of Jesus, we are drawn to him. So author Ray Stedman told this story, and I think it, it, points, uh, it makes a good point here. He told the story of a California woman who was raised in a non-religious family, and she'd never gone to church, never. And uh, when she was in high school, Dr. Billy Graham held his first crusade in the city of Sacramento, and she lived near there. So she was invited by some of her friends to go and hear him. If nothing else, the world's most famous evangelist, and he's going to be right here in our town, and why not at least come and hear him? So she did. She listened to the choir, that mass choir. She listened to the wonderful testimonies. She listened to all the great special music. And she's sitting there, and she had this thought go through her head. She said to herself, I know this man is using this whole thing to manipulate these people. You see, I know that he is psychologically preparing them to respond to some kind of a challenge or invitation or response of some kind. And she knew that in her mind. I mean, she felt that, just very confident that, 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 that she could withstand what she considered to be manipulation. Because she knew exactly what was going on there in that meeting and what that evangelist was doing. So as the sermon came to a close, Billy Graham gave the gospel invitation, and here's what she said. I don't know how it happened, but I was the first one to respond. I jumped out of my seat, and I went down front immediately. You know, I was embarrassed, not because I was going down front, but, but, but as I was walking, I realized I was the very first person of hundreds to respond. Do you know why she did? Because she was drawn by the Father and she was believing in her heart. You know, if you don't get anything else, I want you to get this this morning. And I want you to get it in your notes if you're note-taking. The essential ingredient is always belief. Always. We have a tendency in our human thinking to make it something more or something else or something in place of belief. But belief, and I, let me just say this, belief is not being baptized. Now, being baptized is very important, especially if you want to be an obedient Christian. But that's not belief as we know it. Belief is not joining a church, and that's how crucial it is to growing in relationship spiritually. And belief is not some form of confirmation or some religious ceremony because those things are not important at all. But belief, here it is, here it is. Belief is simply, oh, I can't think of any other word. Belief. Why complicate that and make it something it isn't? We believe Jesus for who he is, amen? We believe what he has done for us. We were singing about that a few minutes ago. Amen? And when we do, 
believe salvation, eternal salvation is ours. Amen. And you don't have to work at it. And you don't have to produce it on your own. And you don't have to get your long list of good works. Because the work has already been finished. What are you going to do that's any better than what Christ has done for you? The bill, my friend, is paid. Heaven is yours. And that leads me to the third aspect of this whole thing. And that would be in verse 48 and on. And it would be contentment. And let me read. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. He's just giving them the history lesson. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it. Are you seeing a contrast here? And not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Stay with me. The bread of Jesus is superior. You see, Jesus' critics wanted him to reproduce more food, like Moses did, for how many years? Yeah. But because that's how this chapter starts. Jesus feeding these people with nothing. But Jesus points out that, listen to this, manna had limitations. You eat it, and he said it, Jesus said it, I'm just quoting him, and still what happens? What happens? You die. All the people ate manna, died. Which goes to show that you really can't prevent death. Even in today's very modern and sophisticated medical world, in this day and age, you can't prevent it. What Jesus is offering is eternal. Eternal. I know it's hard to understand eternity when we live in, in, in a finite world, but he is the true giver of life. But to be this giver of life was in a way humiliating. Let me explain. For the bread Jesus gives us is an act of humiliation. Stay with me. Jesus is beginning to unfold, unfold a graphic description here. And one that we need to understand. And I came in the last few weeks of studying John chapter 6 to the conclusion, well, now I know why so few people ever preach or teach on John chapter 6. Because it might be hard to understand. And it might be difficult to take in. But Christians need to hear it. And they need to know it. And they need to live it. Because Jesus is a reality who, 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 who can be known and, and who can be lived. And oh, if I can't leave you with anything else, I am going to leave you with that today. With a crude forcefulness, he ad announces that it is his flesh. You see, the giving that he's, that he's talking about is found in his humanity, his flesh. They could identify with that. Of course, this announcement brings me to the fourth aspect of the, of the discourse, and that's verse 52. And verse 52 is the contention. The Jews then, oh, surprise coming, disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us the, his flesh to eat? I've got to tell you, verse 52 is an angry debate. It's not pretty. 
We're told they're arguing back and forth among themselves. The grumblers had difficulty with the mechanics of this whole concept. Now, that's, stop where you are, back up, Jesus, and let's get this straight. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, I ask the question. I want to know why did so many of these people leave Jesus? Well, first off, this is a hard teaching. And if you look ahead to verse 60 of John chapter 6, you'll read these words. When many of the disciples heard it, many of them, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Look, we can't compromise the Word of God. Jesus wasn't going to compromise who He was. We love the sinner. We despise the sin. We do forgive. We should. We do love everybody. We should. We do seek to restore or see people restored to fellowship as individuals. We should. Then why did these people leave? Because He told them that their true motives in following him, were off base. And this was the difficult but true assessment. Very, very true. Back in verse 26, we get a clue. John 6, 26, I'm reading. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, that means very, very true, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Mm. There it is right there. Not because they believed in him, not because of the signs and miracles and wonders he did, it was only because he fed them. So here's my title. Feeding, verses 1 to 14. Finding, because when they came to their senses, they didn't know where he was. He'd already crossed the lake and and, and he was uh, with his disciples, and, and they were beside themselves. Well, well, let's go follow him. He's going to do more stuff for us and probably feed us again. And so verses, <clears throat> verses 24 and 25, they find him. And then verse 26, he just said, this is why you found me, and this is why you were searching for me, and this is why you seek me. Just not because of any of these right reasons, but because I fed you, and you ate and you filled your bellies, and that's all you were ever thinking about. Not because you believed in me, not because of signs I did, which meant something. It was only because I fed you. As Jesus' followers, we cannot serve God, friends, by what he gives us alone. Or by what, oh, what I'm going to, I'll serve God if. If he'll do this for me, I'll do that. It's not about what you're going to receive from God. That's not the basis for serving God. They left him because, this is so sad, they left him because they didn't reach their carnal goals. And if you look at verse 70 and 71, it kind of wraps it up. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? 
And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You know, saying all this and looking at all these otherwise depressing verses, they would have been, I want to also get you to get this in your notes, uh, 1 Peter 5, 8. And this is the sum and substance of the heart of a servant for Christ. Here it is. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, listen, that he may lift you up in due time. Ah, oh. His statement for these Jewish people is so hard for them to take in. They don't see how it's possible. Not only, but at first appearance, the statement seems to be downright offensive. I mean, these people are sensible. They, these people have feelings. Doesn't he understand? I got thinking about this just a few days ago, and I, in my notes it says, now if I'd been the Lord, I, I might have backed off a little bit at this point. I might have tried to, like, you know, put a little sugar on this thing. I, I don't know. But not Jesus. You know, if we're real true followers of Jesus, why is it sometimes we're afraid of truth? He doesn't back off one bit. Instead, of his statements actually get more deliberate and strong and more important. Someone said he became food with an attitude. <laughs> like that. Yeah. And so then, I'll leave you with this as I go to the fifth aspect, which is companionship. And I want to read seven verses, starting at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things, where? In the synagogue, as he taught at Capernaum. Wow. He has purposely said all of this in a way that would be absolutely abhorrent to the Jewish mindset. It wasn't kosher. Just imagine someone saying to this huge flock of Jews, you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Look, Jews don't eat the flesh. Jews don't drink the blood. Jesus was looking for something bigger and more profound. But even today, what was meant then by Jesus was totally missed. And I think it's totally missed by a lot of people today. And I don't want you to miss. We are tempted to see this passage, and some churches and, and, and faiths take it as, as, as cardinal doctrine, as related to communion, or call it whatever you want. But it does not support at all 
the doctrine of transubstantiation that says when you take sacraments of some kind, which we call just symbols or element of the elements, you are actually eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. Well, I'll tell you why that's not necessary, because there's no need to re-crucify Jesus over and over and over and over again. The book of Hebrews says, once for all. Neither does it support some kind of vulgar cannibalism. And, 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 and Jesus' meaning here is more profound than these literal understandings with no understanding. Some of you may know the name Paul Brand, B-R-A-N-D. He's a famous missionary doctor of yesteryear. and His, his career in medicine traces all the way back to uh, training in a hospital in East London. And one dreary night, uh, he was, act, he was uh, serving as an aide at this time in training. Uh, hospital order, orderlies wheeled a beautiful young woman into his ward, and, and she had lost much blood in, in an accident, and it had drained uh, just from her skin and just left her an unearthly pale color, and her oxygen-starved brain had shut down into an unconscious mode, and, and, and a nurse dashed down a corridor for a blood transfusion bottle while a, while a doctor kind of fumbled with the, the apparatus to, to get the transfusion going, and they, 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 they couldn't detect even the faintest pulse on her cold, limp wrist, and she looked like a, she looked like a wax museum exhibit or, 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 or a marble statue in a cathedral, really. And she didn't seem to be breathing, and, and Paul was certain she must be dead. And the nurse arrived with a bottle of blood, and the doctor punctured the woman's vein with a large needle, and they set the bottle high to gain more pressure so the blood would simply empty into her body faster, and the staff told Paul to keep watch as they hurried off for more blood. And as he nervously held her wrist, suddenly he could feel the very, very, very faintest press of a pulse. The next bottle arrived, quickly it was connected. A spot of pink appeared on her cheek and, and, and it spread into a beautiful flush and, and her lips darkened into a pink, then into a red and her eyelids fluttered, fluttered lightly and at last they parted and she, she, she squinted at first and then she looked directly at, at Paul and she asked for some water. Wow. You, you know this story, this true story? You know what I thought? It is a beautiful thing to receive life when you're dying. That's the very thing that Jesus is doing for us, my friends. For what he's describing is a spiritual partaking. It is a cryptic allusion to his upcoming death. He was going to die, are you listening, so that we might live! That's why we sing songs like we, oh, I like the music there. And I, no, no offense to anybody. I don't care about the music. I love the message of songs we share together here. Because I know 99% of the time I'm singing scripture. I'm singing eternal truth. I'm sim singing something that can come into my very heart and change my life. That's why we sing Waymaker. That's why we sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Oh, your grace so free washes over me. You have made me new. Now life begins with you. Oh, we're free, free, 
free. Yes, we're free. You may find all of this kind of tough. As someone said, hard to swallow. Pardon the pun. But when Jesus asks us to eat his flesh and drink his blood, here it is. It means to recognize all that Jesus was giving up on your behalf and on mine. So in response, what should we do? Fully incorporate Jesus into our lives. And then take Christ into our innermost being. We are to eat his flesh and drink his blood so that he abides in us. I'm sure you've seen the commercials for Gatorade, if you watch any TV or sports or anything. And they always ask the question, the Gatorade uh, commercial, what is it? Is it in you? And it has different meaning, but we might ask the same thing today of those who claim to follow Jesus, everybody in this room who claims to follow Jesus. Is he in you? You see, Jesus is a reality to be known and lived. James Boyce, in some of his writing, put it this way, and I, and, and I really like this. So I'm going to quote it. Is he as real to you spiritually as something you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you can eat? Boyce goes on. Do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be real and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. I say this because, although he is obviously far more real and useful than those things, the unfortunate thing is that for many people, he is much less. End of quote. So I ask, Does Jesus live in you? Remember the very first command of what we call the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. And if we were to say that the opposite way, it would be God saying, you shall have me. I think it's healthy for us to consider it this way because it points to the intimacy which Jesus says we must have with him. We must know him so well. It's like eating him. I said like it's consuming him. It's living him. It's be he becomes a part of us, and as a result, eternal life is ours. But not only that, I want to ask, do you continue to feast or to feed on Jesus? There was once a health food restaurant in a certain town. It had a billboard outside, you know, like the, the little sandwich board. It said, eat here and live a healthy life. The barbecue pit next door posted its own response. Eat here and die happy. Thank you for responding, because you know what? I'm happy to announce that when it comes to Jesus, both are right. You're going to, be, you're going to die happy, and you're going to live a very, very, very long life. I didn't say 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, or 100 years. That's a drop in the bucket to the believer your last breath here, the first breath there, you're starting something that we can't even describe. It is so long. It is eternal. 
So keep feeding and be hungry for Jesus. Don't be superficial, just going through motions, and just being like a religious type or a churchy type. Let's be in our Bibles. Let's receive the nourishment that we need to have in, in our lives. And let's get the strength that we need so that Jesus will be in reality that he is the real thing and we need to know him and we need to live him and we need to have him. And for the rest of my message, which is only a couple of minutes, I'm going to refer to the Connect card and I'm going to let it do the preaching for me for a moment because if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, we didn't come here to judge you. We came here to bless you. And this would be a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time for you to say, today I'm accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior. Or today, Pastor Bob, I want to know more about this wonderful Jesus. Or today you say, I just don't know. I think I have God in my life, but I don't know. I put other things before Him. You know, have no other gods before the Almighty God. Have Him, know Him, love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, everything within you. Let Jesus be in you. Let take him into your innermost being. So, so there's no doubt when you follow, there's no doubt who you're following. There's no doubt whom you want to be like and continue to feed. And by the way, what I want you to do is write whatever decision you've made. Just put your name. You don't need all the other information. And the decision you've made and drop this card in the box as you leave. Or even better still, hand it to me or Pastor Todd and talk to us. We would love to hear what God has done for you this very hour from the great sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. Continue to feed. Continue to be hungry. Keep feeding so that you will know his words, his instruction, his love every day of your precious life. Go ahead, whatever the decision, write it down, fill it out, get it to us, or speak with us after we dismiss. Let me pray for you. Now to Him, the Almighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, who is able to establish you by the truth of the gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the true bread of heaven, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory forever through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.